Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and injection molding adventures. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 349. And yes, we're going to talk about it again. November 5th, 2022, Extra Life Charity Stream. Um, so last week I said I was going to have a demo of what I've worked on. I didn't get a chance to demo it or build the demo, I should say. Um, I basically like got a Python script talking to like the Extra Life API and then just like had other things pop up that was more important to do. Um, so instead, I think I'm going to do a stream working on it. Oh, that's fun. Um, so I don't know. I'll probably just like watch my Twitter feed, which is, you know, Twitch was it uh, twitter.com slash Longhorn Engineer. Yeah. With no O's in it. <laughs> <laughs> Super easy to know, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, watch the Twitter stream um, for when the Twitch stream goes live. Is it? A tw- is it? No, it's a Twitter feed, isn't it? Feed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Watch the Twitter feed. Um, and then, uh, I did get the page though, all put together. Um, so it's all updated, um, with all like the rules and everything that we're doing this year. Um, I actually decided to do some milestones for this year. And one is if I, we, if we hit halfway through the goal, um, I'm going to cosplay as a alien colonial Marine. Okay. Um, and then if we hit the actual goal, which is like I think halfway is two thousand five hundred, and then we hit five thousand, I will cosplay as a secret character. Oh, nice! Yeah, secret character. Um. Yeah, I think that's about all I've worked on. I guess. <laughs> so November fifth, uh, starting at eight a.m. And uh, right. where do they go to watch you? Uh, it's twitch.tv slash crab foam, I think is what it is, which is the uh, that's my twi- my private Twitch uh, channel, um, which I don't stream like at all on there. I pretty much just use it for extra life. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but yeah, we'll have a link that you can go and donate to if you're interested. Um, some interesting stats. Uh, so last year we raised like five thousand, uh, was it like five thousand one hundred sixty nine dollars and forty cents or forty two cents, um, which got us number one for the Texas Children's Hospital Network here in in Houston. So that's awesome. Um, our global rank is three thousand nine hundred fifty three. Oh wow! And I don't know how much that's out of, but that's kind of cool. How many pages are there? Uh, <laughs> Probably. I'm lots, on page right? 300 something, and there's 2,309 pages of participants. Wow. How many there's pages? a lot. Go. Yeah, I did. I didn't know there was that many. It looks like there's 10 people per page. Okay. So that's 230,000 people are signed up for it. Wow, that's crazy. And we're 3,000 something. It's not bad. I think we can get that number higher, though, this year. 
Does ever? I, I guess I haven't looked into it. Does every streamer do the same thing? You play video games for twenty four hours? Uh, I think everyone does. Most people do that. Okay. Um, some just do for a couple hours. It, it's up to the person. It basically just, and you you can technically do it at any day. Yeah, it's just that's like the big day, right? Oh, okay, like I, like I could stream right now for extra life if I wanted to, and mm-hmm. just have the donation link up, right? Um, but the, November fifth is like the big push to like get it all going. Mm-hmm. All right, well, tune into that. It's fun. Yeah, it's gonna be a blast. Can't wait. So, uh, earlier this summer, I finished up a project that uh, we talked about a handful of times on the podcast, and I just kind of wanted to wrap it up here. But uh, we. We've talked about it, I don't know, a handful of times over the past few years. I've been calling it Adventures in Injection Molding. Uh, yeah, I think it had... started mid-2020 or something like that. Yeah, this was... Uh, the pandemic and everything made everything a little bit slower and difficult, but uh, we finally got everything done. And uh, uh, so I just wanted to talk about a little bit of a recap of, of what happened with it and maybe give some uh, shed some light on some things I learned from it that uh, were the the hardest parts. So what was interesting about this was designing the part that I was making was was pretty simple. The actual design was easy. I was able to actually just 3D model the design, make a, a, a drawing of it that showed critical dimensions, dimensions that I wanted to hold really tight, and then send it over to my injection molder. And they were able to just interpret everything from that. It, that was actually one of the easiest things to do. Um, getting the material just right was uh, was not the most fun. That was the the most difficult part. Um, and and one of the reasons why it was difficult is because of the what what exactly we were trying to do with this part. So so basically, what I've done is is I designed my own button for um, my my company's products. Uh, so this was a universal button that we could use that had a, a particular stack up it fit over top of a piece of uh like polyamide sticker that has a click dome underneath it and it has a plunger that basically presses on the uh on the uh the, on the, the contact pads. on the contact and it is held captive by an aluminum panel above the pcb so there, there's a handful of unique characteristics about this part but for the most part it's it's a pretty simple thing um but but so one of the one of the characteristics about this that really makes it nice is is some of the buttons we'd used in the past had really terrible service life you know we'd buy a button that says it was rated for a hundred thousand presses and we would get nine thousand out of them or something or yeah we had we had terrible problems with buttons changing colors when going through the reflow so they'd all be one color pre-reflow or if you just tested a a, a a button on your on your desk and then we'd send it through and the leds would darken or change colors and then we'd have a variety of colors on our boards so our previous button supplier was just they promised the world and gave us garbage to be mm-hmm. honest it really was not good did you ever use those uh like the really tall tack switches Yes, yes. Like the actually, have got a really long actuator on them. Yeah, with the big stem on it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So back before Macrofab, um, 
I was working with Chris Church, who's the other co-founder at Macrofab here, at his previous company, which was Dynamic Perception. And a lot of the controllers um, to, I guess, make reduce how much parts were in it. Basically, we just used long um, tack switches to poke through the enclosure because mm-hmm. it was like the board was like stand off enough. So like you had to like, you know, you had to have a long actuator. Right. And we had a lot of crib deaths of those actuators. Like yep. those switches, once they, if they were good, they never really failed. But man, we had such a huge fallout of those switches. Yeah. I want to say like 10% product fallout because of those switches. And um, that was actually one of the first things I did when I, when I started working there was I went through the entire bone pile. And like yeah, got thousands of, of these controllers yeah. and just went through and like, oh, it's the switches because like they would test it and like, oh, it's not working. Put it in the bone pile. Right. Yeah. I went through and basically like, oh, it's this switch, you know, over, desoldered, and over, and over. put a new one on. <laughs> boom. Working product. Yeah. Right. Right. There's just so many of them. Well, and so our previous design used a large array of switches that were similar to that, that similar as in like rectangular body or sorry square body with j legs mm-hmm. um and and an integrated led kind of thing there's they, they worked well for a, a handful of things but some of the characteristics were incredibly annoying um so some of that being that we would have initial failures and then if you're trying to clip out or desolder a, a one switch in a sea of switches it actually mm-hmm. is very difficult so you had to be very skilled to do that uh we're actually now that some of those switches have been out in the field for a few years. We're starting to see the failures come in where we'll get RMAs where someone's like, this button doesn't press unless I really, you know, push on it or I have to double tap this button every time I want it to be a single press. Like we're starting to see failures with those switches well before we should have. So that's what kind of what spurred us on to design our own button. And we went with with click domes mainly because we could apply all of the domes to a, a PCB in one operation. We got all of the domes on um, a sticky sheet that just using a jig, you just press it onto the board. All the buttons are pro- applied at once. I I did a whole thing a while back where I I tested the um, uh, how many presses i can do and i got over a million i I basically got over a million presses and it was still operating and i just gave up it's like yeah didn't we like we even looked under we took the you took the domes off yeah after a million and looked at like the the, at the pads yeah yeah because you just used enig finish surface Uh finish on the pcb so it didn't it wasn't even hard gold or any like carbon because sometimes they put like that carbon film on it yep yep. this is just straight enig finish on it and you could barely tell, like there was wear, like you never tell it was smoother, basically. Yeah. But it was, it didn't look any worse for wear. Hey, <laughs> it, it was over a week of hammering these buttons with a linear actuator, eight hours a day, and uh, yeah, there was very little wear, and they would have kept going. Uh, I, I literally just stopped because the, the goal was a million if we can get a million, and and the thing about that that's funny is the goal was a million which is 10 times above what our current switches were already rated for and a hundred times beyond what we were seeing failures for so mm-hmm. okay like I'm not, I have no worries about these things functioning and, and working so the the actuator is is a little plastic 
injection molded piece that sits on top of the click dome and mainly it's just a frame that has a, a a spring molded into the frame that allows a plunger to push down onto the the click dome and that plunger protrudes through the f the front panel that the user touches so that's the button i guess you could say the the actual button part mm -hmm. everything else is just there to hold the that the that plunger vertically basically yeah and, it had uh, like a ring around it that was like a little springy yeah yeah it has three legs that are about half a millimeter wide that are in a uh, kind of a spiralish pattern such that uh the it, it, it acts as a uh, gosh what do you call that a spiral spring i guess uh it has a name but um it, it, it acts as a spring that allows movement in one axis without the button rotating as you press it the the force allows the 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 plunger to go straight up and straight down on top of that the the entire amount of motion that this button does is 16 thousandths of an inch so it's not much at all uh so i got custom click domes made that that have a nice snappy action that's not too much across 16 thousandths and then these actuators the thing about it that with the old switches we were using is the switch was mounted on the top side of the board and the switch had an integrated LED. So if the LED ever went bad, you had to disassemble the entire unit, remove that entire switch and replace it just to replace an LED. With the new design, uh, all of our click domes have a hole in the middle of the click dome and we actually solder a reverse mount LED on the back side of the board that shines through the board, through the click dome, through the actuator, up to the panel. So if an LED goes bad, which, you know, it's rare, but if it ever does, you just take the unit, flip it upside down, replace it on the back side of the board, and you've replaced the entire thing. Yeah, you don't even have to mess with the uh, switch. And you don't even have to uh, disassemble the unit to replace that, which is fantastic. So all of this was mainly to make repairs and rmas a lot easier if if for whatever reason an actuator went bad you could take the front panel off and just replace that single actuator like with your fingers and you've replaced the entire switch which is nice so so one of the one of the big difficulties with this there was two main things that i fought for the entire length of this project uh and this all comes down to the material that we were using uh, one was we wanted the material to be diffused such that the LED that was shining on the uh, the material just made the material glow. We didn't want it to be crystal clear uh, such that the LED was just like a point source shooting through it. We wanted it to be slightly diffused, but we also didn't want it such that we had to just overcharge our LEDs and pump a ton of current through them just to be able to see it at all so getting a, a plastic that had a very low haze characteristic which i've come to learn that haze is more of a proprietary term that some people use and not others so it's not like something you could just go and say to any plastics manufacturer some people call it haze some people call it other things um, the other characteristic that i i, I was really interested in was and and this is a little goofy but when the plastic actually entered the mold and became my part i wanted it to be to hold its dimensions and not have internal voids we ended up calling them bubbles because they look like a bubble but it's actually not a bubble it's a vacuum uh, when the plastic cools depending on the 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 shape of the device 
uh, it can shrink from the uh, differentially from the outside to the inside, and that can cause a void to happen. And what really sucks with our product is it always favored putting a bubble right dead center in the middle of the post that the LED is trying to shine through. That's just the way the plastic was. And uh, one of the things I learned about plastic molding is uh, plastic just has a mind of its own. Like you, you don't, it's, it's really hard to predict what plastic is going to do. I mean, there's a lot of experts out there that will know what, or have a very good gut feel of what it's going to do. But for the most part, the way to find out what plastic's going to do, buy some plastic, put it in your mold, and see what it did. Uh, which is a little bit annoying. Uh, you know, I, I relied on the experts as much as I could, but w uh, even, even my molder was just like, well, we just have to try. We just have to do a handful of trials to figure this out. And we went through uh, six, seven different materials, which is quite a bit. Usually they, they're saying most, most places get their material in two or three tries, but at the same time, they're not trying to do all the characteristics we were trying to do. And, and what's really funny is like, we were going, we were talking to chemists at, uh, plastic, like the, the, the bead suppliers, and we were giving them, you know, verbal descriptions of what we're trying to get done. It's really hard to characterize because most of the stuff we're doing isn't, there's not a value for it. So they're giving us ranges and they're saying, Hey, you know, this product through this product, you could pick one of these five and try them and, and figure it out. What, what we ended up going with. The product is made by a company called Pinnacle, and the number is 5112C3, which effectively what it is, is it's Ziploc bag material. It's just like straight up like Ziploc. <laughs> and and I even talked to their their like product specialist, their, their chemist there, and, and asked them about like, look, we're trying to hit this like exact like diffusion level. And, uh, you know, their characteristics on their data sheet call it out as haze, and their haze is represented by a percentage. Uh, we ended up going, this Pinnacle product here had a, had a haze percentage of 8%, and that's about as low as they would go. Uh, they, they don't have anything less than that. Like, if you go less than that, then you, you're basically talking about a different polymer. Uh, like a you go you go with go acrylic clear. or something like that. Yeah, you, mm -hmm. if you're trying to get like optically clear, you, you're not going the route that I'm going. I want I wanted some haze, so eight percent haze. And there are some some characteristics on how you can define that. They they do some kind of a a plate uh, and shine a light through it and count particles or something like that. Uh, but you know, I tried stuff between eight and twenty five percent, and twenty five percent haze. You would think that light would transfer through that pretty, pretty well. It actually ends up looking like milk. Uh, so I, I, that's probably actually a, a fairly decent description of it. Like some of the stuff we got up at the twenty-five range was like milk. Down but like at the so, eight, like solid milk. Solid milk, yeah, like solid milk. Well, but no, if you that, if you put a good a wrong way to say solid milk, but 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 not like yeah, but but. Yes. So, like, if you poured a glass of milk into a glass, yeah, it looked like that. It looked, it looked basically like that. Yeah. So huh. you would, you would think that that's almost. Uh, that would be opaque milk. to me. That'd be that would like be almost opaque. 100%. Yeah, and 25 percent was almost opaque, but you could still shine a light in a glass of milk, and you'll see it diffuse. Barely. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, it depends you, if you're drinking you, skim or whole. <laughs> yeah, two percent, right? Uh, <laughs> 
so so you know that was that was the thing like i i didn't know a good gut feel for like what's a good haze level to pick from like i have no idea yeah. i'm an electrical engineer and i'm over here trying to find like optical properties of polymers you know that i guess that's a testament to like if you go in electrical engineering you're probably not always going to do electrical engineering but 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 let's just put it this way uh i talked to the 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 product specialist at pinnacle about you know, I, here's what I want. How do I get this with a haze level? And they said, go to your kitchen, get a Ziploc bag, fold it over like 20 times. So you have like a thick chunk of plastic. And he said, shine an LED through it. And I did. And that's basically what I got. Uh, so it, like it actually came out well. 8% might even be just just so slightly on the edge of being too clear, actually. Uh if I if I were to do even one more round, I might go with nine or ten percent if that mm -hmm. was a possibility. But eight percent looks good on our product. Uh, so it, 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 this is all stuff that I, I spent time googling. I talked to people, tried to figure out like how do you define this, and and almost everything I found was just like, well, you know, because you know kind of thing it's, there's not like a lot of resources out there so I'm, I'm hoping that someone you know if you're in the same place if you're trying to make a light pipe or anything of that sort and you want the entirety of the light pipe to be diffused uh you know stick to the lower numbers i uh, like like i said 25 percent an led has a uh, has a tough time shining through that and and just to be clear we're talking about shining through about 10 to 12 millimeters of light pipe mm -hmm. not like if you had 25% diffusion and you're shining through one millimeter, it's considerably different. Uh, so, so, and that, that's a, one other thing that, that is a uh, great about this pinnacle uh, product. It has, gosh, what is it called? Um, low melt flow and excellent processability. That's directly from the data sheet. We went through multiple products trying to eliminate this void that's in there, that that bubble. And luckily, the product we landed on was the only one that had the the right haze and it avoided the the void. So it's how the pro, how plastic the polymer degasses while it's cooling down and how it swirls through your mold will produce voids. And plastic is a non-Newtonian fluid. Uh, so it doesn't flow like water. It doesn't flow exactly like you think. So there's a ton of variables you can choose, like how much pressure you push into the mold, how long you hold it, uh, what temperature it is, you know, before it enters the mold, what temperature you have on the mold, what temperature of coolant you flow through your mold. There's all kinds of variables you can play with. And when I mean you, it's going to be your, your the injection molder. Yeah, injection molder. Yeah, you're not going to be playing with these things. Uh, I mean, you can probably ask. You you can, and for the what I would, for the most part, you can ask and just say like, "What did you do?" Once you got it right, if you're curious. But uh, you know, even with these other products that you know, the ones that failed with us, we tried all kinds of different variables on their machines and just got mm -hmm. not a lot of good luck. And uh, except for this one, so so this one particular. Uh, material flowed well throughout the entire thing and it's uniform throughout which is exactly what we were looking for it just took a very long time to figure that out and we did the majority of it over the pandemic which makes things slower and and more difficult so uh the one last thing i wanted to mention there's there's sort of two main ways with 
you know, light pipes in a, uh, in a system design that you can get away with diffusing. There's what I just talked about where you pick a material where the material by itself is diffused. So every, every inch of it is, is diffused. That's useful. However, diffusing throughout the entire, the entirety of your light pipe sp spreads light everywhere. Like it will exit from the sides of your, your mm -hmm. light pipe. The other way to diffuse light, which is, you know, depending on the application is easier and better is to actually specify a clear material and then just put a surface finish on the area that you want to be diffused. So you can specify a rough surface and it will diffuse right at that rough surface. Uh, so I've now done light pipes in both ways where the materials diffuse in the, and the, just a surface is diffused. It is certainly cheaper and easier to do the surface diffusion. So if you're just looking for sending light through a device, I would suggest, you know, pick a rough surface, uh, on the surface that you have that's facing the customer. Is, is there any reason why you didn't do that on this button? Absolutely. Like because given even a short period of time, you would smooth it out with your finger. Okay. The actual, you would, you would get rid of the surface uh, diffusion and then it would just be a straight clear light pipe straight to an LED and it would be blinding to look. Okay, okay. That, no, that totally makes sense. Yeah, so so I, I, I mean, kind of plastic that you interface with a lot. Yeah. Starts getting smooth. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So anything, anything that a human's going to interface with, you want the material to be diffused. Anything that's just going to sit there, it's way easier to just diffuse a surface. And and by diffuse a surface, I mean you just put a texture on it. Yeah, you just put a texture. And uh, I can't remember. I can look it up. I don't remember what uh, texture we put on our light pipes. But you know, I just went through a list of textures and saw one that looked close to a grain structure I saw on a different light pipe and just chose that and they came out perfect. So it's mainly just, they, they do a really fine bead blast on the, um, yeah. on the mold, mold and then yeah, the, the, the surface just glows nicely. So, so yeah, that luckily that's done. I got 57,000 of these made and you know, a good chunk of them are sitting in my office right now. So it's it's finally nice to just be like, ah, oh, that's done. How many boxes is that? Three thousand per box. So it was a full pallet of okay, yeah. box. Not a full pallet, but like, you know, a pallet with two stacks of boxes. Yeah, that's three. cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 another testament to injection molding, something that's super awesome about it is like once you're done, I was able to get fifty seven thousand of these made in two weeks. Because like it just takes no time for for injection molding to work. I, you know, that's hyperbolic. It depends on your application. But for a little thing like what I was going for, it's super easy. It's just that upfront design cost on figuring out these things, especially if you're like me, where I I went into it just you know, but no I idea. had to learn things as I was going. Yeah. Uh, well, not no idea, but yeah. Well, I had done it before. I had done injection molding before, but I had always done it with way easier specifications. Yes. Where it was just like big opaque thing that needs to be the right size. You know? Yeah. Like, and now this is like specific that has like really uh, unique characteristics. It's dynamic. It has to pass light. It has to be able to be robust against, you know, long term. Humans. Like it has, it has a lot more characteristics to it. Mm. But so it's a... Uh, yeah, I wish I had one right now. I I had did have one on my my desk uh, at one point in time, but 
I, I could take a picture of one. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've seen a picture with this new plastic, too. So it'd be great to see like an example of it, like lit up and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I can. I can absolutely do that. And I can show one of the old ones that has higher uh, haze level and, you know, do an A-B comparison kind of thing. That'd be cool. Yeah. Um, so the 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 uh, the PCM or um, power control module, also known as Jeep Prop Fan, which we need to change. Uh, we still haven't come up with a name for. Oh no, someone came up with a name for it last week, didn't they? I'm not sure. I don't remember anymore. I would have written it down if there was a name. Let me check. Let me check the notes from last week. I I feel like it should have some kind of like really quippy acronym. Like most of my projects. Like all of your projects. <laughs> <laughs> um No, I don't have a name for it yet. Okay. Um so I think last week we talked a little bit about kind of like the architecture of it. Um it's gonna run like a a, a Raspberry Pi Pico, the RP2040 microcontroller. Um, we're going to do half bridges for all the outputs. Um, so one thing we we started looking at is like power requirements that we want and started basically drawing up a list of like um, what stuff gets connected to this. Right? Like a system diagram. Yeah. And so some of the more powerful things are like a uh, electric fan, potentially. Electric fans are like mo- one of the more power hungry things in a car. Mm-hmm. And because those pull like 30 amps at start or more. Um, so having, um, we can't do every single output at 30 amps because that would just be insane of a power be expensive system. Expensive and huge. <laughs> yeah. So we're probably going to only have like four, four channels like that. But what really dictates basically what we can build with is the connectors. Um, so we're going to do, we'll get a little more down the road here, but we're going to do two options with this device. One's going to be a full like waterproof enclosure with connectors. And then we'll have one that's more of like an open frame chassis that has like pluggable terminals. That's more for development or like inside your car or like an evolving you know, piece of hardware for your project car. Um, but what dictates the entire specifications are those waterproof connectors. Mm. Um, because when we find those connectors, that dictates how much pin, how many outputs we can have, how many more inputs we can have, how much power we can put over those pins, all is dictated by the connectors. Because uh, we did, I don't want to make one version that's like the the screw terminal one that's got like, 50 amps per channel and all that stuff and then have to make a cut down version for like the waterproof. I'm like, nope, they both have to have the same specifications. Um, so finding the connectors is hard. Um, I found some uh, TE connectivity ones that do like 25. And what's interesting is I found some other like analog style um, relay boxes that use these connectors and they actually spec them for 30. 
But then you go to like the TE website and it's like, no, it's 25. I'm like, okay, that's not good. Um, <laughs> Hang on. I'm, I guess I'm a little bit curious. Uh, what, what kind of cabling is going to be going to the box? Is it just a wide variety of different cabling? Uh, copper stranded wire. Um, for like the 30 amp stuff, that's like usually 12 gauge wire. And then, of course, for like, we're going to put power lugs, like actual screw terminal lugs uh, for the power input because um, we're basically going to have 30, 300 amps at 12 volts is what you can deliver to this, this device. And so, um, basically, you know, a big stud that with a nut on it, <laughs> right? Well, one of the reasons why I just know nothing about automotive electronics or very little, I was just thinking instead of trying to find expensive, bulky waterproof connectors, could you not just do waterproof grommet entrances and then the PCB has inexpensive connectors on it or screw terminals? Yeah, it's more of a serviceability, having to open it up and then unscrew everything because I've been there and it sucks. Got it. Okay, you would just want to be able to plug into the box without opening. Yeah, and then unplug it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. So that that's the big thing is finding. I, I, I might be to the point where I'm going to find a a connector that's for like the high power, like the 30 amp stuff. And then find another connector that's for the 15 amp stuff and then find the inputs, which is, you know, really low current stuff. You know, you're talking like milliamps at that point. Basically, just use three different connectors yeah. for that. Um, I did find some really cool. I can't remember what they were called. These really cool um, enclosures. Let me scroll back in my history feed a little bit so if I can find it. But they were really cool. Um, like they had built a, it was basically an enclosure that had a built-in connector and a built-in heatsink area. Hmm. So like you built your board and you would put the TO220 like MOSFETs in the right spots. And then it had this like part that would clip over them. And when you slid it into the enclosure, those parts would like interface with with a metal part on the enclosure oh nice yeah what were those called also i love the fact that your design is starting with connectors like that's amazing <laughs> i mean get, uh, get the crappy stuff out of the way first i mean that's it's everything about it is hinges on that well, so when you say waterproof you really mean like an IP rating. Do you know what you're yeah. kind of going for? Six something. <laughs> Six something. I like Yeah, it. 68 probably, somewhere in that range. 60 is, I mean, that's that's pretty beefy. Yeah. Yeah, eight is what, a few meters underwater? Yeah, because so, I'm thinking of like, someone could use this on their Jeep and then like go into like a big old mud pile. Like yeah, driving around. Uh, so six is totally protected against dust and eight is protect against long periods of immersion under pressure. Yeah. You you might only need really more like 67. Yeah. J Jason in chat found it. Uh, it's the uh, mod ice uh, like enclosure. Oh, I like that. That's cool. And it's I've, got a gasket on it. Yeah. I really wish that would that was going to work out. 
Um, but it doesn't not, have enough. It, it doesn't have enough high power. Yeah. Yeah. The pit, yeah. The, like the max current is like 15. Do they not make this in? Uh, is the, is this like the only one? It seems like they would make it in different widths with different connectors. Uh, the one that they show in that assembly document is like the biggest one. Man, I swear, when I was at Macrofab, I I worked with a a client who was doing this, who had these. Could Maybe be. I I think they were. I know there was another one I was working with that was doing. Uh, it wasn't this enclosure, but it was similar, and they were doing um some boating stuff. Yeah, but that was there was a wiring harness inside the chassis that interfaced it with the connector. Right. Right. So it right. was like it was like a build box where this is more like a PCB solder the the connector to your board and then the whole thing slides in and locks into place. Yeah. It's still wow, a really the- cool product and I'm putting that into like if I need to design something else automotive that doesn't need to be crazy power it's like that that's it right there i bet you it gets spicy inside that box oh hot yeah no it's got heat sinks i guess so no you're right yeah well i it has it does have heat sinks but uh you know it is a big box and it's got heat sinks on like the side yeah 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 that wow there this the data sheet for this has like a whole this monster jig for like putting all the boards into it. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of cool. Actually. To press yeah. everything together. Yeah. Wow. That's a cool, cool piece of kit right there. Yes, um, it is. We'll probably end up going with a more custom enclosure. Um, probably all aluminum. So then we can have like the, the uh, SMT MOSFETs at like the right distance with a thermal pad and like heat sink the whole thing. Um, yeah, uh, we've talked about it multiple times. Remember uh, Takachi enclosures? Yes. They offer a lot of waterproof stuff. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say a lot. So yep. Jason yep. in our Twitch chat says, for max current, would a couple connect uh, conductors be an option? I'm That could be possible. I'm going to say no, though, because <laughs> um, we should just design it, you know, badass, like all the way. We're making the Cadillac of PCMs that's open source. I'm looking forward to it. I just got to find the. I've already basically found the connectors I need to use for like the low current stuff. And when I say low current, it's still like 15 amps <laughs> per. Um, but for the high power stuff, I still haven't found the exact connector yet. But I, mm. I stopped searching probably I think last Wednesday, so it's been a been a bit. I need to dive back in to the catalogs, the connector catalogs. But it, it does like the the twelve amp three. I'm sorry, the thirty amp twelve volt. It, that's not like a sustained for extended periods of time. It's no, that but you for still got to support. I, so for that kind of stuff, I'd like the connector to be able to 100% duty cycle because that's how you get crispy connectors in like five or six years. Oh, right, right, right. No, I, I'm not saying like underrate it and and allow for overrating for periods of time. I'm, I'm, I'm saying uh, at least you don't have to design around full duty of that happening. Mm-hmm. That's true. Because that would suck. <laughs> that would make it a little bit more difficult. 
the internals are going to be uh, unique on that box to be able to handle that much juice. Yeah, uh, just heavier copper. We'll probably put in proper like soldered down bus bars, um, stuff like that. Yeah, it's actually not as crazy as you think. Like I've been like architecting it out a bit, and it's not too crazy. Um, we're going to do current sensing. So one of the things I want to do with it is, um, you could set like currents for all your outputs. So like you go, okay, the fan takes thirty, the and the electric window takes five. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, when you start adding everything up, let's say you have a max of 300 input or you can actually set what your max is, right? So let's say you are doing max 300. You say, hey, my max is 300. And if you start reaching close to that 300 number, you can start prioritizing power sources. Like mm-hmm. if you're running a fan and that should have priority one because keeping your engine cool. But then you go to, let's say, um, adjust your your uh let's say lower window and it goes okay you don't have enough power for that yet so we're not going to move that window stuff like that but that's not really i don't see that foreseen being a big problem in the automotive space for like actually like for controlling a car but one of the applications is to use it as a upfitter module which is actually we might end up selling like making more than as an upfitter module, which is like for camping, camping rigs and that kind of stuff that get attached to cars. Mm. Um, and that, that power distribution will be a lot more or for current reading will be a lot more uh, important then. Yeah, yeah. And we can do the same thing on like uh, the current sensing. We can do stuff like um, actually sensing stalls on motors. Like the example is electric windows. Um, so you can do stuff like one touch electric windows. So you can just press the uh, momentary button and that's it. And that will raise the motor all the window all the way up. And when it detects a stall, it can turn off the motor. Um, instead of, you know, having like old school windows is like you just hold the button and you have to wait for like, you know, 10 seconds as the window goes up. Mm-hmm. So it'd be nice to just like click a button and it does its thing. Quality of life stuff. Yeah, quality of life stuff. But that's stuff that you can do uh, with the current sensing in the module. Um, now, for inputs, I did find a product that um, already does like eight channel thermocouples and it's on mm-hmm. Canvas. And so, it's oh, like wow. going, so I'm like, okay, I don't need to do thermocouples. So I'm like, there's already a product out there that exists. And it's, it was like 300 bucks, sounds expensive, but for this kind of stuff that's kind of normal. Um, so we're not going to do thermocouples in the product because um, that stuff already exists. But um, it, so instead of doing that crazy like LTC 2986 chip, which is like that super configurable, like does everything chip. The thing is awesome. It is also $40. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not cheap. Um I think what we're just going to do is just expose a bunch of zero to five volt ADC inputs and, you know, protect them and all that good stuff, but just um, expose those. And that's our, our either digital or analog input. Cause most, most sensors 
on an engine or like temperature or anything like that, even though we're not making it as a motor controller, there might be some reason that some sensors you want to read and that those that, that zero to five is going to be good enough. Plenty. And that will also be the digital. Like if it just goes some, you know, five volts or we'll make them 12 volt compliant. So you can just run the switch on 12 volts. So you mm. don't need to have like a five volt regulator. Um, so you can just do, you know, digital on off. Yeah, connectors. That's going to be the hardest part. I'm pretty close um, to having the connectors. And then once I have that, then I can be like, hey, this is our super high power. How many outputs we have? This is how much normal high power. This is how much inputs we'll have. Then that kind of just dictates the enclosure size. And then past that, it's like, okay, this fit everything in it now. But yeah, I think after designing stuff for so long, connectors are always like the weak link in projects or in products they, too. They suck. Yeah. Because um, they're always way more expensive than you think. They always, they always hamper you. Right? Though I was looking at TE catalogs. Um, I'd look at their stuff a lot. I just want... I wish connector companies would either sell or like sample out like just one of everything. Oh, just like a briefcase full of connectors. Yeah, but like I we don't need the terminals, right? Yeah. Like I'm talking about those like the wire ones, but like like here's a whole bunch of examples of screw terminals. Like we don't need every line item. It could be like let's say the screw terminals and they give you like a four pin one. And be like this and then have it like this connector comes in or this screw terminal comes in you know conductors two to 30 and here's an example of that family right but just have all of that and like a bunch of cases so you can just go through and figure out what you want by just looking at it hmm. that's actually how i think i've said it before on this podcast that's how i go look for connectors i like type in the specifications into like the specifications I care about, which in this case is like 30 amp waterproof automotive connector. And I go look at Google images yep. <laughs> and I scroll and like open up like 20 tabs of stuff that looks like might work and then go through there. Have you looked at the, the tiger guys yet? Sam tech? Not yet. See, I yeah, I would say check them out. Give give yeah. them a shot because they've got so many connectors. Yeah. I just don't know. I only have experience with them with like high density stuff that goes like PCB to PCB mount stuff. Yeah. Um, I have never looked at their external, their PCB to world connectors. Is all I <laughs> to <call them>. world. <laughs> yeah, they have a lot of stuff. My experience with them is it's harder for smaller uh, smaller quantities it's harder to get what you're looking for and it'll be pricier sure but they have a ton of stuff available i'll take a look yeah cool well sounds like you made some good progress on that yeah mostly spreadsheets <laughs> well it sounds like you're actually tackling a lot of the hard stuff yeah, once I'll put it this way, once we get the connectors, we can flush out the rest of the specs and then uh, actually start like doing a schematic. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Schematic probably isn't that crazy on something like this. No, it's going to be super simple. It's a lot of just like ins to a processor and then outs that are just controls. Like yep, simple that's controls. That's all it is. Yeah. And we're using like, we're using integrated half bridges that have logic level inputs to them and outputs. So it's like, oh, that's right. Cause easy. you're doing a pie, right? Yeah. 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 Well, not a pie. The we're using the RASP, the RP2040 microcontroller. Uh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're, they're microcontroller, but with hats and it to make it all easy. So that, that all in you're, you're well, just integrating that with one of your boards, right? No, no. I mean, the first one, yeah, but the second one, we're going to put that chip right on the board. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. Got you. Yeah. You're going to integrate it into your system. Yeah. I mean, why not? I don't know. Just when I hear open source, a lot of times it doesn't mean that. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. it does now. Okay. It does in this case, I should say. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I can't wait. Um, I got to find that last connector. I found some really cool like connectors for uh for the uh like this the the lugs basically the, the battery lugs I guess they they actually snap on ones hmm. they weren't cheap either but I'm like that's cool we're doing that <laughs> <laughs> just just gut feel what do you think like cost range of a of a box like this would be five hundred six hundred bucks. Okay. Yeah, to end user, probably around that range. All right, so it's still within like, uh, it's still within reach for somebody who wants to play around with it. I'll put this way: is like off-shelf PCMs for hot rods and stuff yeah. are like six hundred to two thousand dollars. Right, right, right. And six hundred dollars so doesn't get you a lot in that space. It's like barely anything. Yeah. Um. Again, most of it's going to be in the enclosure. Well, so the six hundred might be like. The not waterproof version. <laughs> Connectors and, and enclosure, right? Yeah. Well, the, the the not waterproof one will have an enclosure. It just won't be waterproof because you still need to protect it from like you dropping a screwdriver on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's going to have like a, a, a box that goes around it. That's just not water. Like the connectors, you know, just plug in and out because we're going to use those. Remember those like lever action pluggable terminals we found a couple weeks ago uh maybe what were we talking about when we were those parts oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay sure i'll yeah, say it was yes. a couple weeks ago and uh but so they're like the phoenix terminal the phoenix connect style pluggable terminals mm -hmm. except with a screwdriver to, to you know tighten the uh the wire down it's actually a snap action like a wago yes okay i remember that yeah, yeah. those are cool yeah so we're going to use i don't those think we were talking about one. those in a podcast i think that was on our slack channel oh, could be yeah or maybe it was in the hour before or after we actually it could recorded. be too yeah. i don't remember anymore but yeah i, I remember, remember talking about it once those are cool yeah So, okay. Well, out of curiosity, okay, so you, you sort of have, you said you have two versions. You have the non-waterproof and it's like the dev version. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you have it set up where that 
like let's say somebody had the dev version and they were playing around with their I don't know their kit build or whatever they were doing and then they wanted to upgrade to the the other version are they interchangeable or will they be basically interchangeable hardware wise yeah I mean you got to change the kit like let's say you had a wiring harness you'd have to change the the, the interface there yeah because like the connectors aren't going to mate up okay yeah okay okay I just didn't know how like similar you were making the two. The hard, the actual hardware and software are going to be identical. I know, identical. The only okay. difference is basically the enclosure and then the connectors. Yeah, because the clo- the waterproof enclosure to do all the heat stuff is going to be, not be cheap. Um, whereas like an open chassis one, you know, hell, we can get away with putting like a little fan on it if we need to. Yeah, like right. or like open air heat sinks, right? I, I, I think I calculated it out. It was at full tilt. One of those half bridges is going to be, um, it's like six watts with the dissipate. So that's okay. 30 amp continuous yeah. at full R on. Um, now, of course, that changes if we start doing a pulse width, but I don't think you try to pulse width 30 amps. That'd be kind of crazy. I want to try it though. See what happens. Well, I, I, what was just going through my head with that? Say, if you had the dev version and you were like figuring out where you're going to put it and how you're going to connect to it, if it had, I, I'm just thinking, like if the if the hardware the the boards were mounted to a plate that was the same size as the the final. Oh product, yeah, yeah. The the, then, the mounting will be the same. Okay, yeah, I got it. Okay, so you can like practice, not practice, you can design with the dev board and then when it comes time for game day, you just swap it out for the waterproof version. Yeah, and you, just, you do have to put, you'd probably have to take all the wires out, crimp terminals and, and on it, put them in the housings. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. But And then but, you could like, my idea is you use the dev board for that and then if you have multiple cars, you can just use that one all the time. But you could also like, sell it to the next person down the line yeah yeah all right so, well cool i'm 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 excited to see where you go with it and uh see yeah, we already have a lot of interest in our our uh, slack community to design cool. it so yeah you have you have more than just you working on it yeah yeah right, let's wrap up this podcast yeah. Uh, so one one other quick topic. We'll just uh, we'll just rip through this real fast. Um, the, uh, the a few weeks ago we talked about. Gosh, we had a whole list of new fabs opening up, and on oh, September the tasty the tasty chip fab. Yeah, episode. tasty chip fab. I, I, I we went through what, like 15, 20 different fabs, or and and a variety of other stuff. And and one one of the things we were talking about in that uh, was Texas Instruments three hundred millimeter analog fabs well on september 29th ti announced that they begin chip production at uh, their new fab which is called rfab 2 which is basically a second wing of a fab that opened in 2009 in richardson texas uh but they're connected but they're they're can they're called different fabs so there's rfab 1 and rfab 2 uh so they just started producing their uh, doing 300 millimeter analog wafers uh, and between the two fabs within a few years they expect that they'll be getting up to 100 million units a day so is that at, between at two, two of them 
Yeah, between the two of them. So one does, let's just say 50, right? Yeah. So they're doubling it. Why is it? So if it's already open, why does it take so long to ramp up to to that? I, I'm not sure. Maybe it's production scheduling. Maybe it's like getting people on board. Maybe it's just hiring filling it out. Yeah, hiring yeah. all of it. Yeah, because they say it's 630,000 square feet of clean room. You know, uh, who knows how much of that is all like when they say they're they're producing, are they producing in all of that? <laughs> you know, maybe mm. maybe there's different phases where they bring things up. Uh, one of the cool things is the article that I found for this. Uh, they were talking about some of the technologies of 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 ICs that are going to be produced there and they were mentioning things like digital isolators, ethernet transceivers, brushless DC motor drivers and digital analog converters, which I love hearing all of that. That's all like the really good stuff that I think we need more of. Mm -hmm. uh, so having that close to home, having a fab that's going to be cranking out that much is fantastic. And and apparently TI has uh plans for a handful more fabs to open up stateside so thought that'd be some fun information to give out yeah i think the issue we're going to run into um because actually the issue we have right now is we need more workers for this kind of stuff high skilled workers well i mean ti must uh assume that they're there because they're investing i think the i saw what 30 billion dollars in four new fabs so, yeah i'm just saying that's where it's easy to build things. It's hard. It's, I think it's harder to get talent, you know, good workers basically than to build things. So I think we talked about that in the last time we brought this up because uh, it was like, you know, it, we needed like 600, like in the next three years, we need 600,000 SMT like workers to build chips. And we went down that rabbit hole, like, okay, how much is actually like what's current inflation? Uh, not inflation. What's current um, unemployment? It's like three point five percent, which ended up being like a couple million people. Which like, okay, we need to start getting like education rolling then now. <laughs> yeah, getting people trained up. So, because I imagine it, that like, they might even hire like you and me, because we've never done that kind. Of well, actually, you have you have done that before. Uh, but but minimally more than me like they would never hire me for example because i have zero experience so it's like how do you get experience in that field you you get a job and you work in it that's yeah, the you might get stuck in that uh in that uh what, what was it called um the hr pit of doom <laughs> i i i i if I were to go try to get a job at, at Texas Instruments, um, I feel like I, I, I'd be a little bit lucky. My my father-in-law was a uh, a pretty high-up lawyer for them. So uh, he, I, I'm sure I could pull some strings with him and, and get on the phone with some people. Um, so I, if I were to try that, I would, I would avoid the HR pit of doom as much as possible. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like, we're going to need a lot of people to do these jobs. Yeah. And I know... Like it's really hard to hire normal PCBA like operators and assemblers. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to hire those in the United States. Let like this is another level of like skilled labor of like how much training you need to operate these other these more precise machines and processes. 
Apparently um, they have something like 15 miles of overhead track for all of their little robo wafer carriers. Oh, geez. So you, you need skilled laborers just to make sure that those things work, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but 600,000. So if you are listening to this podcast and are want to get into electronics, that is probably the industry you should go towards right now. There's like lots of jobs in it. 600,000 coming in the next, what, I think it was like three years or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, go do and, that. And they pay well. Yeah. That sounds exciting. Yeah. I really want to know how you get started. I wonder if it is just like get a degree in like electrical engineering and then apply. And like, Absolutely. No, yeah, absolutely. So. You might you might be a test junkie for, uh, you know, a handful of years, and then you you go from there. Yeah, I guess I guess so. Well, that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. I, I, if you actually, like, broke out in, like, the SMT like, chip manufacturing, I want to know, like, how you started. Wouldn't be calling the podcast to be a guest? If you think that's a good idea, tweet us at MacRab, at Longhorn Engineer, with no O's or at analog ENG or emails at podcast at macfab.com.